I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Independent crop consultant and owner of Nestor Ag in Northwest Ohio, Joe Nestor specializes in issues surrounding agriculture's impacts on the Lake Erie Basin. Nestor has been a speaker at the National No-Tillage Conference as recently as 2017 when he spoke about why phosphorus leaves the farm and what to do about it. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, No-Till Farmer editor Frank Lesseter talks with Joe about his experiences working as an independent crop consultant, including his early struggles with figuring out no-till corn, why he likes barley as a cover crop, Ohio's massive prevent plant acreage in 2019, the new H2 Ohio Water Quality Improvement Program incentives, why he believes no-till ground is worth more than conventionally tilled ground, and much more. Let's get started, Joe. Tell us a little of your personal history. Where'd you grow up? Uh, What was your education, et cetera? Well, I'm actually living right now two miles from where I grew up, northwest Ohio. I uh, was involved in ag the, the whole way through school and uh, FFA locally. My dad had a had a small farm, and I knew I wanted to farm, but it just never really transpired. And so I, I got into uh, agronomy uh, at a local uh, community college here and then went to work for a, a fertilizer uh, company called Sohigro. Mm-hmm. Which oh, yeah, I later, that. yeah, later went to uh, ownership by Terra, and then in 1992 uh, left that business and started independent consulting, and, and been doing that ever since. So, uh, how many farmers or how many acres do you work with today? Well, we, we've got a lot of guys working for us here, Frank. I got four agronomists and four samplers that are in the field all the time. And so we're working on about 225, 250,000 acres total across Ohio, Michigan, and Indiana. And, but a lot of it is in that western Lake Erie Basin, sure. those type soils. But I think you got some customers north of Indianapolis, don't you? I mean, you go that We far. do, yeah. We almost deal remotely with some of those guys. We have some that'll help out a little bit, have the, the wherewithal to sample on their own and things mm-hmm. like that. So we've, yeah, have, and really a lot of those guys we met at the National No-Till Conference. Right. So remind me again, what year did you go in business for yourself? 1992. Okay. But you were kind of hooked on no-till before that, weren't you? Well, I I was, and it was um, the way that came about was kind of by accident. I, I was fortunate enough to work with some real innovators, which back in the you know, late 70s, early 80s, I think there might have been another word for those innovators. So maybe they were crazy, but uh, you learn, you learn crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you learn from the field and you learn from them. And, you know, almost everything back then to do field work, no till was fabricated right. on the farm. And uh, I got to see a lot of guys think real hard how, how they could make it work. Be, and 
they wanted to make it work because those heavy clay soils of the western Lake Erie Basin crusted so easily after tillage. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, so they were unknowingly destruct, destroying soil structure. Uh, and they found that if they could minimize tillage or, or even completely cut it out, boy, the, the biology started taking over and, and really helped things as far as soil structure and drainage. So that's where that came about. And then the John Deere 750 no-till drill came out. Right. And that particular machine was a was a slice and plant type of operation. And for us, for soybeans, it worked tremendous. So we still had a lot of conventional corn, but almost all the beans went to no-till in a short period of time. And and I kind of saw an opportunity there, so I purchased several John Deere 750 drills and leased them and uh, to let farmers try them. And I, I think maybe the only mistake I made there was I should have got a deal with John Deere where <laughs> maybe I got a commission if they bought one because I I sold a pile of John Deere drills for John Deere. I think you're being humble. You said you bought a few of them. I think you bought 10 of them, didn't you? Well, that, yeah, <laughs> over time. I never had 10 at once, okay. but I, I did buy 10. But I'd run about four uh-huh. usually and shuffle them. You know, I wanted guy, a lot of guys to try them. So guys would run them for a few hundred acres, and then I'd move them on and, and uh, could pull them with a pickup truck down the road. And it was pretty easy thing to do. And it, and it worked. It definitely worked. So that started the wheels turning with a lot of guys, I think. Yeah. Well, I think two things happened that really made no-till catch on. First was Roundup, and then second was the 750 drill. That's true. I did leave out Roundup, but that was a big, that burn down and start clean. Mm-hmm. You know, where prior to that, the only way we could, we started clean was with tillage. And there were some high magnesium soils in this this uh, Western Lake Erie Basin, and we weren't quite on to that, that calcium-mag relationship yet. And we worked them, and it temporarily freed them up, but, boy, you started getting rains, and they got hard. Right. So when you got these guys in, interested in no-tilling soybeans and it caught on, how did this relate to corn? You, they were, you were doing a lot of tillage with corn in that time, and they weren't totally convinced they could no-till corn, right? You know, and and beans were better, and I, I really think it's um, just the way that seed comes out of the ground, the difference between corn and beans. You know, in a slow-growing situation, the corn lives off the seed reserves for quite some time, mm-hmm. where that bean lifts that seed out of the soil, puts a taproot down, and starts on its own. It, you know, it can feed itself from the soil much quicker. And we tried corn. We had guys trying corn. The equipment really wasn't there for no-till corn uh, as far as planters. Sure. And and we had a lot of, we called it seedling death, Frank, because we really didn't know what happened, but it died. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we noticed that when we got residue from previous crops in that no-till situation that got real close to the seedling coming out of the ground, that seed got a disease and died. Ultimately, it was pythium. But, you know, that was before seed treatments. And think, I think Ritamel was on the yeah. on the horizon, but it was really expensive. And 
So lots of things have changed since then, but corn did lag behind. You had some wheat in those days in that area too. We did. And the, the wheat, actually, I would say if you back that up uh, before the 750 drill, uh, we were probably a third wheat. And guys did it just because it was rotation. It spread their workload out. Sure. And remember, they had to work the ground to get mm-hmm. get their crop done. And in those days, you know, you get 40 or 60 acres a day done, fitted up and, and ready to plant. That was in many cases a pretty good day so that spread the workload out now the 750 drill worked great for no-till wheat also what where the wheat kind of started going on the endangered list was the the profitability wasn't quite there we had some tough winters on our wheat because we still hadn't addressed this water infiltration relationship on a lot of these soils and then guys felt like they had to work that that wheat stubble. They sure. just weren't happy with the way it dried out in the spring to get on it no-till. Are you seeing wheat come back at all in your area? Well, it, you know, they plant it if they're going to tile, definitely. Sure. Okay. Or if they've got some conservation practices to put in or something like that. The last couple of years have been really tough on us in this area to get wheat planted because we've had late crops and then wet falls. Right. And so we haven't had a lot of wheat. There are some guys looking at it. There's some high management wheat that um, guys can do okay on, but we've also got a lot of guys interested in some barley too. So sure. the barley has, has kind of picked up some of those those uh, acres that maybe were wheat before. That's going to be whiskey barley? It's uh, beer uh, barley. Or beer barley. Right? <laughs> yeah, craft, my, craft my God, beer I'm barley. From, I'm from Milwaukee, and I can't even get that straight. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big deal. Uh, you know, I think that's uh, one of those big new paradigm shifts that uh, the craft beer versus the, the conventional beers. And right. the craft beer uses twice as much barley as the conventional beer. So there's a demand. Going back a number of years, you were talking about residue managers such as the Phoenix, the Phillips, and the McFarland Rotary Heralds. Those have kind of dropped by the wayside, haven't they? They have, and and I think they've been replaced by what you would call this vertical, vertical tillage. Um, okay whether it's a turbo type of machine or something that really, you know, is just working the top inch or so that's above the seed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, we used to run that. I think we had some real good results with the Phillips Rotary Harrow and the uh, McFarlane. And basically what we were doing there was just managing residue. We were fluffing sure. and turning that, that residue bleaches out and it turns white and it reflects it. So it's slow to warm and, and, and then it's, it's in clumps out there, you know, it's not equally distributed because the earthworms clump it. And those tools helped us dry somewhat and gain you a day or, or two. Now these, these, uh, Vertical tillage tools, I think, have replaced that. You get minimal tillage, and I'm I'm just going to almost classify them as residue management t- 
tools, Frank, because mm-hmm. I have not seen those be a detriment to soil structure or biology. Okay. I think they help the planting job. They'll get you out there a day or two sooner. They can run them at a pretty good speed now um, and cover a lot of ground with them. But it helps that planter ride smoother maybe than what we were doing with the McFarland and the and the Phillips. Mm-hmm. So in your work with uh, people, you must run into lots of different drills, lots of different planters. Do you have some recommendations for attachments on let's start with planters? Okay. And and I do I do have some recommendations and those would be involve yourself with a good local or regional supplier that has several different tools because my first my first uh caution would be if somebody tells you they got the the cure all then run from it because it's it depends on the soil conditions and soil types uh, drainage, so it's pretty re- regional as far as what works, what does the best for you, and uh, you know you'll hear some guys swear by certain certain tools, and then they take them in other soils, and they're they're plowing or or they're they're pushing or they clog, and mm-hmm. and uh, so and and that it seems like that industry changes really fast too, right. to where you almost want to be on that ble- bleeding edge, but not too far that you're the sacrificial lamb out there but there's uh there's a lot of different choices and i've seen many of them work frank um and sometimes there's modifications the farmer makes or he's using part of one system and part of another but um it's it's probably a lot more regional than guys would think I sometimes think you could have two no-tillers that lived across the street from one another, both very <laughs> successful. And if you switch systems on them, they might both flop. It, and it's a, I think it's a confidence thing. You know, I got, yeah. I got guys that are, I call them green thumb guys, where some guys just consider it an honor to be able to farm next to them. <laughs> and, but if you change something drastic on them and, and there's more than one way to skin this cat. There's no book or anything that says this is the one and only way. And if you don't do it like this, you're going to be wrong because weather comes into play. Soil structure comes into play. Timing comes into play. And, uh, you know, t- that timing thing is huge anymore because it seems like we get so few days that right. you would classify as a good work day. So. Well, then we're seeing rains where average rainfall may may not change, but it comes at different times of the year, or it yeah, comes all at once. We finally got dry here, and what I would what I would call dry conditions, first time in eighteen months, and that didn't last very long. I'm at about two point four inches right now since the weekend, and it's it's not pretty out there, and there's more coming, but it's they're bigger events. And and we have guidelines for nutrient management that we want guys to put it, you know, do things at ri- low risk times. So that's cut down our, our operational days. And and um, Ohio's got a, a deal going on right now in these top 12 counties of the Western Lake Erie Basin called the H2 Ohio program. Sure. And they're actually incentifying farmers to ban phosphorus. 
which is which is good. I think we got away from some phosphorus on the planter as planters got big and uh, put nitrogen on instead. And but th- what a great safe place to put that phosphorus is on with the planter. And uh, we'll model, you know, right now we set up a help guy set up a lot of this spring for variable rate starter with phosphorus. You know, we always looked at broadcasting that. Well, now we're putting it a, a safer place. So lots fewer days to get it done and a lot more complicated than it used to be. So you mentioned the last 18 months had hardly been dry. Take us back to the spring of 2019. You must have had a lot of acres in your area that either got planted really late or didn't get planted at all. So what's happened with those acres for this year? Well, that was, you know, something that you hope you don't run into very often. And as widespread as we are, we estimated that we had about 50% of what we worked on ended up being prevent plant. Wow. Now, there was some, some, it would have been higher than that, but there was some acres planted late June, even 1st of July, for a couple reasons. If the landlord didn't have a prevent plant component in uh, insurance, then the only way to be covered was to plant it. Well, the, the way it turned out and the way that the heat units and the summer came, we had some really good yields in soybeans planted the end of June. Uh, so we did that handled part of that. But what we really tried to get guys to do was get a cover crop out there on your prevent plant acres because it's not good for the soil to not have something growing on it. The biology really, really suffers. We'd been so wet. We drowned a lot of it, and and we really needed to get started towards that repair system. So we really pushed cover crops for guys, and and a lot of them got them on. So when you uh, recommended these cover crops going on in late June, early July, did you change the species from what you might use after corn or bean harvest? Yeah, we did. Now, so we handled a couple different things here, and we ran into some challenges. The the things we handled was timely planting. Sure. That's our usually our Achilles heel with, with the cover crop is how do we get it timely? And so we were able to do that. In fact, sometimes we even, you know, we, we had uh, NRCS even pushing planting dates on us by you know, wanting some cover crops out there when we normally would have thought we'd wait a little while. Uh, and then the other thing, we ran into spot shortages on seed that we were familiar with yeah. or would normally have made the call on. Uh, but for the most part, I, it, it got delivered and handled. The guys handling cover crops did a spectacular job and found seed here and there. And, and uh, even know, there was a lot of guys who just had some oats or something out there that at least got a growing crop and then maybe winter killed, but uh, it was, I had guys tell me this, Frank, they said it takes a lot more work to not farm than it does to farm. (laughs) So it was trying for them. Yeah. So um, what would have been your recommendation for cover crop seeding the last week of June? What species would you have liked to have had if if somebody could get them or whatever? Well, we had, of course, cereal rye was, sure. is one of our big ones here. And we also have a pretty good supply of 
uh, barley out there now, which I really like barley. It throws a little bit different uh, species in there for you to uh, get get some different biology in the soil. And it, it grows fast and easy, and it kills pretty easily. Um, and I think it's a good complement with cereal rye. Of course, we had some guys put some rapeseed in and some, some clovers and some uh, what there was guys went out there with soybeans, Frank. Sure. Uh, you know, they had treated soybeans bought, got a deal from their supplier that if they didn't return them, they could buy them for a, a special rate mm. uh, because they weren't going to be any good to the to the supplier. So soybeans went out with some of those mixes and and it was I think the main thing was get something green growing and let's let's feed that biology that's half drowned and now starving to death. Yeah. I had a farmer recently tell me that I think he seeded something like 500 acres of cover crops last fall. And he said, I got down to the last 60 and I was practically out of seed. And I just went back to the barn and I just found anything I could and threw it all together. And I can't even tell you what it is, but those 60 acres came out better than all the others that I had because I had (laughs) such a variety in there that met all these different needs. I, and I don't doubt that. That's uh, that's good, just good thinking. And and that's how you you learn. You get pushed in a corner somewhere, and you'll yeah. you're either gonna you're gonna learn something right or wrong. Do I do this again? And and uh, I think one of the things we learn is we don't have to maybe have these cover crops as thick as I originally thought we did. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have to look like a lawn to do a lot of a lot of help on the soil out there. Well, it's amazing that, you know, some people that didn't get a cover crop in will seed it in March and they only get a few inches of growth, but they think it's really worthwhile. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a good point. Uh, a little bit is worth a lot at times. And especially when we were, the soil quality was so degraded from all that, pounding rain and long wet periods um it was guys were getting pretty low on the gas tank uh, on soil quality so uh depending on where you started you know some guys that have been working hard on that probably had less impact than other other fields did We'll get back to Frank and Joe in a moment, but I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our Natural Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company's expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Before we get back to Frank's conversation with Joe Nestor, here's Frank with a little-known no-till farmer fact. The question came up recently about uh, Roundup problems often due to hard water, and it reminded me, and I went back as far as 1995 at the National No-Towage Conference, and we had a speaker talking about how Roundup would be an even more effective 
herbicide if it offered better plant penetration. And that idea came from Lloyd Wax, who at the time was a USDA weed scientist at the University of Illinois. However, he pointed out it's difficult sometimes to get enough glyphosate into the leaf where it can work. Wax says that calcium, magnesium, and sodium found in the water causes most of Roundup's ineffectiveness. He says the results are much better when ammonium sulfate is added to Roundup as it removes the metal solids, calcium, iron, or whatever else is tied up to Roundup. So even as far back as 1995, growers and researchers were recognizing the problems that hard water had with Roundup. Let's get back to the program now as Frank and Joe discuss the benefits of planting fertility in strip -tell. Test plots. You do a lot of test plots? We do. We're still doing that. You know, we, uh, we, we work with a bunch of other independent crop consultants in mm -hmm. putting out a, a, a network of plots. Uh, it's handled through uh, a guy I've worked with for a long time, John McGuire, uh, sure. runs a program called Nutrient Star, and it's, it's evaluating different practices and products and we we share it around the region with a lot of different crop consultants and then everybody kind of throws the results into john and he sorts it out and uh, it's a good way to learn we're still doing that you know for a long time we put a lot of nitrogen plots out we might have had 30 to 40 wow. a year ourselves, uh, and we don't do quite that many anymore but most everybody that we've worked with has done their own at least nitrogen rate plots where we're trying to figure out what works under your system and your management and your soils. So still, still lots to learn. We lots to learn. Right. Uh, on these uh, acres that didn't get planted last year or going into cover crops, did they have any special problems planting this spring? No, I will will say this. We had uh, a lot of comments back on soil conditions, mm -hmm. and I would say the most challenged conditions this spring came from ground that was worked and possibly even worked excessively and didn't have a cover crop on it. Those crusted heavy, and, and which you might really think well why wouldn't it it's we've taken sure. the structure out and we didn't put life back so we basically just got dust particles out there to to form a, a crust layer and so i did hear from those guys i did hear from some guys that took last year's opportunity to get on some gypsum on some sure. high mag soils that we had had been calling for but we just didn't get the window to get it on well they could get that last year and i just had a guy last week call and said you know without a doubt the ground we got that on handled the very best this year hmm. and so we were trying to you know whenever we see those magnesium base saturations 17 18 plus percent uh, on these heavy clays it could be a challenge so if we can manipulate that some we can enhance water infiltration and just pull air in that soil and start that, that quality, pro, uh, soil quality headed the right way. So with your guys with uh, cover crops, have you got some planting green into a, a living cover crop? We do. We got some guys that are real good at that. And then we got some, I, um, <laughs> and I won't be afraid to give you a little philosophy here. All right. When I get guys first starting out, 
and especially on corn. So we're going to go to corn behind a cover crop. I have a philosophy, when in doubt, take it out. So okay. we will take that out in uh, early April and try to, ahead of corn, especially if we've got uh, cereal rye or a grass, we're trying to take that out 10 days or so ahead of planting. That is is kind of a fail-safe way for the guy who's just getting started. Now, if he's got some experience or wants to leave some, I say, leave some, let's try to plant some green. But I think that the biggest challenge guys ran into in the past couple of years is when it really got away from them. Sure. And we take that that grass cover crop and take it into reproductive stage, and now it's pulling nitrogen away. We change our car- carbon nitrogen ratio, and we're pulling nitrogen away from the crop we were intending it to go to for a period of time. And so we do that. If it's beans, we can plant our green, no problem, and uh, and take it out. And there's various, depending on how much a guy has to do, they'll take it out at different time periods. But um, once a guy's got a few years of handling that corn, following the cover crop, then we'll, he'll be planting green or a little bit closer to planting time before he takes it out. You think most of these people with uh, some really good experience with planting green are, are doing this on most of their acreage or still just a portion? No, I think they're doing it on most of their acreage. And, and there's tools. I know there's guys looked at crimpers. And, and this year, we I don't know what percent we're planted in Ohio, but we are in Northwest Ohio, we're 95% planted, which is, we, we're normally ahead of schedule. So the cover crops weren't the challenge of big and overgrown that we've seen in the past. So, um, work, work pretty good for guys. We got guys doing it on strip till Frank, that really works great, you know, so they've got that cover crop in between their strips. So we're still really contributing to the the soil health, but it's given them a clean eight, 10 inch band to plant on and they can really go with that. That's a really nice way of handling it too. And then they plant that green, of course. That's interesting what you said about not having mother many problems with uh, a larger crop because since it got planted earlier on a lot of these acres last year, it had a tendency to grow larger. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's true too. Um, although some of those guys didn't, you know, didn't plant till later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time we did get dried out here, uh, it was we were getting into August, and okay. there was a little bit of a dry out time there. But so some of it went out considerably early, but there was a lot that didn't get didn't get planted until end of August. Uh, what conditions did it show last year that tile was a good investment? Every condition. <laughs> so this, uh, there's another thing that if in 40 plus years here in Northwest Ohio, Northeast Indiana, if you're going to pay for tile one way or another, uh-huh. you're either going to buy tile or you're still going to pay for that tile in reduced yield from from later planting and and crop stress. Yeah. We just have. 
uh, an overabundance of water and, and, uh, you know, that tile moves air, pulls air into the soil. It's the tile is, is an, uh, just a, a prerequisite of good farming practices. Uh, get you planted earlier, better nutrient, uh, stability because you you are planted earlier uh better yield so you harvest a better percentage of what you put out there it's the tile is is uh golden out here how do you uh how do you get landlords sold on the value of tile you know there's guys in this area that if they can get a long-term contract and by long term i'm going to say in a five to to 10 year range somewhere there and depending sure. on the, the the soil itself the farmer will tile it himself mm-hmm. and that's a great that's been a great program i think uh the farmer's got to have the the wherewithal up front to to fund that right uh but the landlord themselves so it's an invest investment in your equity i would say when when this ground of hoytville soil sell up here if if it's tiled, systematically tiled, it's worth some dollars an acre more than that that isn't. Well, that's that's you're you're always going to get that money back, um, but it's the timely planting of it. You know, I we bought the ground across the road, and I immediately called the the tiler the day we bought it, and my wife said, "Hey, we just bought that. Can't we wait a little bit?" And I said, "No, now's the time. We got it. The sooner you do it, the sooner the payback." Right. And it uh, it really you know the guys have narrowed up their there's a lot of 25 foot centers that go in up here now where they you know years ago was 50 and and then down to 30 35 and now there's a lot of 25 centers go in. Right. You mentioned strip till and uh, GPS. Uh, most of the people running GPS and what are the benefits for it with either strip till or don't till. I think most everybody's running some type of GPS out there now. Um, the the auto steer is just you're so much more efficient with it. You know, you're taking nearly your equipment with every pass that you go, and uh, straight, nice straight rows, and and you can then you can also have your row shut offs, which it's really expensive to to plant double on the ends and things like that. And then, so now did we, we put too much money in, but we also hampered ourselves on yield because it's too thick. So there's, I think most guys are, are running that now and, and doing a good job with it. Uh, of course, the strip till you have to have it on there and then you have to come back and, and hit those strips or you'd be worse off than if you didn't have it. But I think everybody counts on that really hard now where it, it used to be a I guess you would say a luxury now I'd say it's a necessity right much strip till in that area there is and uh, you know even this uh, this H2 Ohio program is uh, I think Frank the payment is $30 an acre for deep banding phosphorus Wow. So that adds up. That sure. that adds up after a while. And even where a guy could maybe he couldn't justify it on his own, but if he could get together with a neighbor or two and do some custom work with it too, now that 
that payment is, is helping. Not that you want to live on a payment, but I'm just saying down the road, you may be challenged to go that way anyway. So maybe if you, there is support out there, now's the time to pull the trigger. Um, so strip till is taking off and it's, and it's a great, I love that system. The challenge is when it gets, we have the wet falls and that really valuable machine sets in the barn because it's too wet to run. That's when it's, when it's not any fun, but, and it's happened to us. Have you, have farmers who couldn't, um, build strips in the fall done it in the spring and done okay? Certain soil types. So in the lighter soil types, we get those exchange capacities below 10. Mm -hmm. Guys can do that and, and get away with it. Where we can't do it is those, those heavier clay soils to where you get that down below two inches and it turns to that wet gumbo because of the slow drying. So that's, that's a problem there. But one of the things we've, we did a lot of, of plot work with strip till and managing the fertility in it. I did plot work with strip till 30 years ago when it first came out because you could leave the rig up and blow the fertilizer on the surface and then turn around and put your strips in without the fertilizer on and, wow. and make your, make your next pass with the fertilizer below ground and then we also could we could also do that strips of no-till versus strip-till the same way. Surface spread the fertilizer. Don't strip it. Move on over with GPS to your next one. It's a real easy plots to put out. Mm-hmm. And uh, that really what we found is you can drop P&K requirement 25% if you're planting on top of that band as opposed to broadcast, and it's just an efficiency factor. So there's payback on the equipment right there. Right. So Lake Erie, they've had a lot of problems. You've got this new program in Ohio. Why don't you tell us a little about that program and what we got to do to get Lake Erie under control? Well, so and there's they've been working at it a long time, and we've right. we've, we've believed that uh, change could be made, and we believe that we can do this in agriculture. So I've I, I've tried to get a seat at the table several times and try to give a, a at field level perspective. Uh, on some of these ideas, and there's been some really good farmers that have sh- shared a lot of time and and expertise in trying to solve this problem. And it's, it's one of those things where we, you know, we feel we should do it, solve it ourselves before uh, you're mandated on things. Well, so there was a suite of practices that was put together in this H2 Ohio program, and a significant amount of of funding went behind it and it and to begin with it was in the 12 most critical counties of the western lake erie watershed is where it was rolled out and it's right in our backyard we had a lot of guys that were farming in those areas so the the basis of the practices is you need a nutrient management plan so you have to soil sample you soil sample regularly and you follow your soil samples uh, under 4r uh, recommendations. Right. And so anybody that was working with us, you were, you were covered there with where we're for our certified, uh, that automatically qualified the guys we were working with 
for the program. Other guys had to have a nutrient management plan developed, and we'd, we'd already done that. So the basis was the plan. And then the next, the next level was VRT fertility, where now we're, we're applying by zone instead of blanket applications. And there was about an $8 an acre payment on that. Back to that plan, I think it was it's uh, $2 an acre for the plan plus $2 an acre a year for four years. So there's $10 an acre. Um, the deep banded phosphorus was, and, and by deep banded, I don't mean real deep. You had to have it below two inches, which I really feel minimizes the risk. I think that was a good good practice. And if you could do that, and a lot of guys could do it with a planner, there was a $30 an acre payment for that. There was cover crop payments that approached it's either 25 or 30 bucks an acre. There was some manure program money that if you spread manure during the summer, so it was a small grain program. You had to have a small grain, follow that small grain with manure so that you put it out there at a low risk time and then you could get a cover crop on it. Some significant payments for that. And truthfully, we were really worried about this. They Tremendous sign up, Frank. The, the numbers I heard was approaching $180 million worth of sign up wow. for this four-year program in 12 counties. So guys really stepped up and said, we can do this. There's some incentive for us, and we will change the way we've been working in, in hopes to help this water quality and keep the home. Well, then we had the COVID-19 challenge and lots of it statewide were incurred that weren't counted on and, and income statewide was suffering. So we were worried that that program was in jeopardy. And just last night, I read a uh, an article that came out of the Toledo Blade that said that Governor DeWine is sticking with the H2 Ohio program, and the farmers are going to get subsidized for those practices in in that program, which is tremendous news. I, that's good news, and when we haven't had a lot of good news lately. Um, but I, I think it's some really well-thought-out practices, the ones that are going to make an impact and we can learn from them. You know, you get guys to step up and, and try these practices and say, you know, maybe it's not right. all that much more work. Maybe we can do this. Right, right. Well, that's great because with the COVID-19 thing, it would be easy to grab some money that's needed for other purposes. And that's exactly what we were hearing was going to happen. But yesterday that uh, was still left at the top of the of the heap on something that this area really needs is clean water. Mm -hmm. So I, over the years, you've served as a bank director and making loans. And I think you told me once that uh, no-till ground was worth quite a bit more than conventionally tilled ground. <laughs> well, <laughs> you're not supposed to let that secret out, Frank. <laughs> no, and and here's the opinion, my opinion on that. I've I've also had a real estate license for forty plus years, and and done estate appraisals and things like that, and have I'm on a bank board for one reason, and it isn't because of my proficiency in banking. 
Mm-hmm. It was they asked me because they wanted somebody that had a finger on the pulse of agriculture because right. they these banks loan a lot of money to agriculture and they they need to know what's going on there. So it, it's been a very good educational experience for me. I'm sure more so than what the bank has has taken. <laughs> but my my opinion is that we're going to learn to quantify soil quality and soil health and soil structure. Mm-hmm. And just be, just because you have a Hoytville soil does not mean that it's created equal with the farm next door that's Hoytville soil. It's past management can really uh, enhance or, or deteriorate the, the value of that equity for the owner. And so I think that you know, in my opinion, if I had a chance to to purchase two farms and the one had been tilled to death and the other one had conservation tillage and no-till combinations and was, was building that uh, biology, well, there's no doubt in my mind which one's worth the most. Sure. And right. I think there'll be – I know I've talked to some researchers that there's testing out there now. You know, we've, we've got the Haney test and some other things going on where they're trying to quantify that. And I think it may take 10 or 15 years, but I think when somebody sells ground in the future, they'll have a resume here and say, this is my soil quality account. This is what, this is what's in the bank here. And that's why it's worth $500 an acre more than the normal Right. Soil. And you farmers will be willing to do that. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned the Haney test. Are we seeing some new tests like this that are going to make a big difference in soil testing, et cetera? Well, the, we do some work with the Haney test, and really what that test, really good test, uh, all new numbers for everybody. And so what it lacked was field calibration. And we're we're fortunate enough with this network of independent crop consultants that we that we associate with. There's a lot of guys working with that test that we can share information with and say, what do you what do you see in here uh, in the numbers, and what do you like to look for? So calibration was was the one thing. Now that test has can deliver a nitrogen component. And we've separated that out at the lab, at Brookside Labs, where we send our tests. And so if we've got manure in an operation uh, or any level of no-till, we can send those, send soil tests in and get a nitrogen estimation for the entire growing season. And there's some real surprises there, Frank. Uh, we got some, some fields that will show up that will need very little nitrogen at all going to corn. Sure. And unless unless you quantify that, you're going to guess and you're going to guess wrong and you're going to put too much on. And that, that Lake Erie situation, granted, the algae is driven by phosphorus. But if there wasn't an excess nitrogen component in the lake, there would be no toxins. Uh-huh. So nitrogen is every bit as important for us to have a handle on. First, first off, it's expensive. But we have uh, we just got through uh, sampling a big uh, livestock operation farm, and they'll put variable rate nitrogen side dress on their entire operation of 2,500 acres of corn, yeah. and it's based on the nitrogen portion of the Haney test. 
one of the things I found interesting in the last two national no tillage conferences is that it's it's tough times for farming. That's no doubt about that, and they're they're not doing well. But the no tillers, you don't you don't hear the no tillers complaining about it at the conference. They they think they got something going that's better than anybody else, and they're they think they can make it work and survive. Um, any comments on that? They just seem you don't hear them complaining. Well, I I think that's probably a confidence factor. Sure, they have a a handle on some things. Uh, you know, tillage costs. Uh, a lot of guys think they can do tillage pretty cheap, but that fuel truck shows up, right. and uh, you know we we got a guy on our, our bank board that has a fuel company, and he he likes tillage because <laughs> that truck that truck heads the farm a lot more, and then you've got wear and tear on the equipment, right. and so I think those guys are probably running lean and mean to begin with, right? Um, and and know that they can. Uh, live off of of inventories of soil tests that they've counted for, and so I would think probably a confidence factor there is you know they're looking more at bottom line maybe instead of ultimate total yield. Right. Uh, good good people just to sit and listen to. You've heard me say that before at your conferences that it's if if you didn't go to a session at all, you could learn your money's worth in the halls. I had a probably 10 years ago or so, somebody called me in August and I happened to answer the phone and he wanted to register for the conference. And I registered him and I said, uh, you know, I don't have the program done. I'm kind of guilty. I'm running late. And the guy said, I don't care. I said, well, what do you it mean? It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> he said, he said, well, I said, what do you mean? He said, well, first off, I know you'll have a good program, but if you had a totally rotten one, which I thought was terrible, I'm coming anyway because I've, I've spent my time in the halls, and that alone is worth the price of going. I've, I've been to places that I never thought that I would get to visit, Frank, because of your conference, of mm -hmm. uh, farmers that I've met there and have invited me to their farms and are just, you know, there's things that you'd never get to see and, and learn. And these guys, these are guys that will tell you their mistakes. Right. You know, and that's that's where it's really valuable when a guy says, hey, I probably wouldn't do that because I did it and this is what I found out. Well, save the guy some money right off the bat. So really good, net, probably one of the best networking conferences you could in any industry. Yeah, and we sold that idea from the very first year. So I've always been proud of having that idea. Hey, uh, we've talked about 50 minutes. Have you got anything you'd like to bring up that I've missed? Because I'm out of questions. <laughs> well, I was probably out of answers long before you you were out of questions. Oh, you did uh, fabulous. This has been, you know, just something that I've really, really enjoyed doing, Frank. Since I did the independent consulting, and I've told people before, I've never got out of bed one day and said, you know, I don't want to do this today. It's right. It's always uh, rewarding, and and I've. Uh, got to meet some just fantastic farmers that uh, really have a handle on things and you can learn even a guy my age could still learn something if you can yeah. believe that well speaking of age you and i are getting old you got a son in the business i i do i have actually clint nestor is a partner and, and everybody thinks clint's a is a son and he's actually a cousin's <laughs> uh -huh. son we don't even tell people any difference anymore they 
they they just assume that we let them go. And then my son Brad has been out of Ohio State four years, and he's in the business here too, and and doing doing a great job. I guess probably the best thing would be is if I would just shut up and and just let it take its course. I think I'm my main job now is boxing soil tests and getting them ready to ship to the lab. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ending up where I where I started. Yeah. Yeah, it's like in our business, our son Michael was running the company, and if he's around, somebody will say to me, "Well, you want to be retired by now," which is true. But I still enjoy writing, and I say, "Well, my goal in life is to spend half my time writing what I want to do, and the other half complaining about how the company's being run." And then Michael <laughs> Michael is there, and he will say, "Well, you're halfway." <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you already got the complaint yeah. in. <laughs> but it, it's been it's been great, and I look I look back at my growing up on a dairy farm north of Detroit, forty miles, and we have a lot of people in our office that aren't didn't grow up on the farm, and uh, there's a couple Daryl Brunick and myself are pretty much the ones on the farm. But you got to be careful when you talk to, when they ask you questions because you relate back to what you saw as a kid, which has nothing to do with agriculture today. <laughs> that is for sure. Yeah. Right. And there's right. tremendous opportunity for young people out there in agriculture. I'm right. I'm amazed at what I see going on with the, the young people in agriculture out there today. Boy, they got if if we think it's changed a bunch in the last twenty years, wait the next twenty years with these right. Right. these kids and the impact they're gonna have. All right, I'm going to let you go back to packing soil boxes. <laughs> I do. I got some more to do. Thanks very much. I really appreciate you doing this. Frank, it's my pleasure. Yep. Okay, bye. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. A question came up from a reader not too long ago is how you determine whether it's mice or bird damage in your no-till cornfields. So here's a guide to how to determine mice or bird damage, and it goes way back to no-till farmer in the year 1976. Joe Newcomer, who is now deceased but at the time was a University of Maryland agronomist, says mice only eat the corn kernels. A bird may leave a telltale sign of a funnel-shaped spot where he works to pull up the seed. Uh, from the ground. So if it's the corn kernels are missing, it's probably mice. Otherwise, it's probably bird damage. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Joe Nestor for today's discussion. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer, Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>